Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 10 of Just Science, funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, we interviewed Dr. Gwyneth Gordon from Arizona State University. Dr. Gordon and her team have developed methods to use the isotopic abundance of elements in hair to learn more about the history of an individual. This NIJ-funded research, used in the investigation of unidentified deceased persons, will cover how isotopic analysis measures strontium trace elements and even rare earth minerals to shed light on diet, birthplace, and residential history. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. This week, we are at the American Academy of Forensic Science meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's beautiful here in New Orleans. We're having a wonderful time. This is a wonderful happening week. Uh, not only is the American Academy here, but quite an amazing week in New Orleans. But the most critical event of the entire year of New Orleans is the NIJ Research Symposium that occurred earlier this week. We've been talking to a number of the amazing researchers who are doing cutting edge work under NIJ uh, grant awards. And we're very, very fortunate to have with us today Gwyneth Gordon. Gwyneth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And you're, you're with Arizona State? Yes, I'm in the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State. Earth and space exploration, wow, okay. Yeah, it's a little funny. Basically, we took the geology department, the astronomy department, and threw in some engineering. So it's the University of Arizona, though, that has the big astrophysics group, right? True, but ASU is, uh, they're now looking at NASA missions. We just actually got several large NASA missions we're going to be heading. Oh, really? Psyche. Yes. Oh, okay. So, you going to go to some meteors or anything like that? Or? Yeah, that's one of the missions we're looking at, yeah. Okay. Well, I used so. to work at Applied Physics Lab, which built some okay. of the satellites that have spacecraft. You don't have your head in the clouds. You have your head in isotopes. Is that right? Yeah, my background is actually uh, geology and specifically isotope geology. So a lot of these isotope tools really emerged out of geology, but now they're finding much wider application. Mm -hmm. And so I was fortunate enough, we work a lot with some anthropologists at ASU, and they use these isotopic tools for doing a lot of tracing migratory patterns and lifestyles of ancient peoples. So yeah, there's a lot of work in isotopic analysis that's emerging. I mean, some of the uh, drug origin stuff is very big with isotopic analysis now. But what you're trying to do, you're looking at human remains? Yes, so one of the things is a lot of the anthropologists, it's very hard to look at control samples because obviously those people died a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so there have been some studies in anthropology trying to look at, okay, what's the preservation of these isotope signatures? And a huge amount of decades of work have really produced excellent results. But one thing that seemed to be kind of missing was we're now applying these to forensic cases. And there's some forensic considerations that hadn't really been evaluated. For instance, one thing is uh, we have a much more diverse diet than people in ancient times. You know, you may get brie from France or you get, you know, Perrier or, you know, sure. 
San Pellegrino from Italy. I do all of those things on a daily basis. Oh yeah, yeah. me, that's everything I drink. <laughs> but also, for instance, we do a lot of cosmetic treatments, particularly mm. our hair, people, you know, they use straighteners, they use colors, they use all kinds of things. So what we really wanted to do was look in a much more forensic context to see how well are the isotope signatures before death preserved after death. And so are these a reliable, robust indicator for cases of individuals that are found dead somewhere? So one of the primary things about isotope analysis is it's not usually the first line type of analysis. Mm -hmm. So first line is you look for fingerprints, you look for DNA, you look for driver's license, because those are all much easier and often individualizing characteristics. Isotopes, however, can be useful in cases where you don't have that information. You know, not everybody's got their fingerprints on file, and maybe they don't have any DNA in a missing mm -hmm. persons database, and, you know, they don't have any identification. Particularly with migrants and refugees, frequently they'll have very few possessions. Mm -hmm. And so using isotopes can actually start creating a, a picture of what that person's life was like. What did they eat? Where did they live? Did they travel recently? Where did they travel from? Where did they travel to? It can really provide some critical investigative leads. A simple example is if you can tell somebody's local versus not local. Mm -hmm. If the isotopes are telling you this person's not local, then law enforcement doesn't have to spend time searching back through all their missing persons files because they know they're probably not there. So it has a lot of potential. Uh, it's really kind of been underutilized, but it's starting to come more and more into use in forensics. Let's take a step back a little bit. And so you've posited a theory, and that is that there are differences in the isotopic concentrations of different kinds of foods and cosmetics and that kind of thing. Now, I am familiar with water, right? So yep. the water you drink, the water you bathe with is going to change the oxygen and strontium concentrations in you, right? So tell me about oxygen and strontium and how that works in practice. So um, one of the other really wonderful characteristics is that these different isotope systems are independent. So they give you decoupled pieces of information. They really give you different pieces of information. So carbon and nitrogen is really related to our diet. So carbon berries because of basically what kind of plants we're eating. Are we eating a lot of corn? Uh, are we eating a lot of other vegetables? So for instance, uh, Europeans are very different than Americans. And that's because we eat a lot of corn. Okay. The food writer Michael Pollan says Americans are like corn chips with legs. <laughs> and isotopically, that's pretty much true. Sure. And nitrogen isotopes really record something about protein. How much protein are we getting? Also, what kind of protein? Is it protein from uh, fish or is it from vegetables? Is it from beef? All those have slightly different signatures and there's been a huge amount of information, particularly in the anthropology field, characterizing those differences. So then oxygen and hydrogen are really related to the global water cycle. So they vary by latitude. So one of the basic ideas is that isotopes often will change or, as we say, fractionate because the masses of those atoms are slightly different. So isotopes are basically, they have the same number of protons, so chemically they behave the same way, but they may have different numbers of neutrons. 
So this gives them slightly different mass, which actually means that their chemical reaction rates differ just a little bit. Sure, especially for like a deuterated compound, right? Well, for a deuterated compound, but even like a very simple example, when you boil water for spaghetti, you're fractionating isotopes. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the, sure. oh, the light right. isotopes of the They're water that are evaporating, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so if you put a cold plate over your pot of spaghetti, uh -huh. you can actually, you'll, you'll fractionate isotopes right there. Sure. And this goes on at a global scale because a lot of evaporation occurs along the equator. And as you move further away from the poles, you actually get successively what we call isotopically lighter, meaning more enriched in the oxygen-16 isotope. And so it's very easy. One of the things we did when we set up our lab was get samples of water from Fiji and other areas. And it's very easy to tell if they're adulterated or if they're you know, counterfeit. Sure. So how uh, much fun is that? That's great. It, it is. Yeah. And, and, and students really like that because it's, you uh -huh. know, you can just go to the store and you can get Icelandic glacial water. And yeah, and turns out to be compare. tap water, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Often it really is. You can still see the chlorine in it. Yeah. So, and then strontium isotopes are really related to the underlying geology of where you're living. Basically, soils are produced and all that strontium is going to go into the plants that are grown. And most of our agriculture and even our dairy still comes from a relatively local area. Mm -hmm. So we then eat this and incorporate it in terms of strontium. Also, water you shower in actually has strontium and your hair can exchange with that water. And so the nice thing is you have here diet, geology, and hydrology. And each of these isotope systems is telling you something distinct. You can also have lead isotopes, which are related to geology, but frankly, people have made a much bigger change. So sure. right now, leaded gasoline has been phased out for quite a while, but it's still very prevalent in the environment. Oh, well, yeah, I saw something recently that showed like there's 40 to 50 billion dollars worth of GNP lost each year from the illness associated with just lead toxicity. Yeah, and it's especially for children, those yes, toxic course. effects can be really... And mercury apparently is a significant contributor still as well. Yeah, so one of the really great things about isotopes is they don't just tell you concentrations, but lead, you can actually tell something about source attribution. Mm -hmm. So you can say, well, this lead is consistent with this mine because a lot of times when they're making leaded gasoline or when they're making a lot of paints that have a lot of lead, they're going to source that from a particular mine. Mm -hmm. And depending on the logic process that produced that, it may actually have very different isotope compositions. Right. Uh, so we had a student, uh, Greg Brennica, work in our lab and this has also been of great interest for nuclear forensics. Course. So you want to be able to kind of isotopically fingerprint nuclear materials. Uh -huh. So it's got a huge range of applications. But the ones that I was really focusing on was basically looking at people and trying to understand if those original signatures that a person had in life, are they preserved throughout the process of decomposition? This isn't the first time NIJ has funded something in this area. So NIJ funded isoforensics to look at the oxygen strontium uh, ratios and do some idea of sourcing. And that's been used in casework to some degree already, right? Yes. So tell me how you're actually looking at a broader range of isotopes, first of all, than oxygen and strontium. Tell me also some other things in terms of the development of the research that's going on in this area. Yeah, so James Erlinger and Turi Serling at mm -hmm. University of Utah really are a lot of the pioneers of this field. And they have got multiple students, James West, processing where marijuana is grown. He sure. comes out of their lab. Uh, so they've just done phenomenal work. And what a lot of what they've done is really establish 
both underlying mechanisms, but also they've done a lot of work with GIS. So you can create what's called an isoscape, which stands for an isotopic landscape. And that's really where the real power of a lot of the geographic profiling comes in, is because you, know, you can measure a value, but you have to know what does that mean? Sure. Is this, what does that relate to? Where is that on a map? I want to invent something with a cool name like Isoscape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they actually looked at that, looked at all of the different kinds of isotopes geographically and source-wise, I guess, and have a map, at least to some degree, of the continental United States and some globally. Yes, yeah, so there's actually a lot of work in European labs also. In particular, there's a lot of concern about source adulteration of what are called protected foods. For instance, champagne. To be called right. champagne, it has to come from one region of France. Otherwise, it's a... Sparkling a, wine. Sparkling wine, yeah. exactly. So there's a lot of concern. The European Union has created these protected designations for specific regions and specific food types. So there's a huge amount of research in saying, okay, well, how can you prove that you know this olive oil really is from this part of Tuscany or sure. things like that? So there's a lot of research there as well. Each isotope system, and frankly, even almost each type of material, requires some special consideration. In detail, it gets very complex very quickly. So for instance, it's pretty easy to generate maps of water isotopes in the US, but then when you drink water, there's a lot of biological processes that actually change the isotope signature from what you originally drank. Because at high temperature, we actually evaporate a lot of sweat and we lose a lot of water through different processes. There's a lot of other biological processes that produce these specific fractionations. Their lab has done a lot of work in really trying to nail down what those fractionations are. Mm -hmm. So it's better to have a water map and then plot where these hair samples would be on a water map rather than just try to create a hair map. So you can't just have one map. And there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. So for instance, like strontium, it's pretty easy to get a strontium map of bedrock mm -hmm. and you can make some predictions. But there's again, there's a lot of processing from that bedrock into a person. For instance, right. there's soil formation, and that changes the isotopes in, in different ways. Right, and how the plant takes it up, and how it might go through a pig before it gets to the person, <laughs> yep. right? And so on and so forth. There's a million, I imagine, variables in that regard. Yeah, strontium isotopes is nice because it's what's known as a radiogenic isotope signature. Uh -huh. So there are a lot of different types of isotope variation, and that's one of the power of using these different techniques is they have different controls. So if you really understand the underlying chemistry of it, you can really understand when is this a good application and, and when sure. is it not. So we'll take a step back a little yeah. bit. So I'm thinking of carbon chemistry for dating, right? And so one of the things that you see is like they had the atomic test back in the 50s and when they stopped the atomic test, all of a sudden you have a very nice little timeline there. Yes. But you have the same issues there, but even worse, I would think. I mean, if strontium, which isn't that chemically active, and that is essential, is got the kind of variations, how can you possibly do any carbon dating at all? I mean, that's, that's a great question. So carbon has multiple isotopes. And so we're actually talking about different types of variation. So carbon-14 basically decays at a specified rate, and it's not really changing during chemical processing the same way the ratio of the more common isotopes, carbon-12 and carbon-13, are, mm -hmm. because that's a radioactive process. So 
We have both what we call stable isotope fractionation, which is really a mass-dependent process, and then we also have radioactive isotopes. So the controls and how they change are really different. So the carbon-14, you don't have to worry about all these chemical processes nearly as much because it's a nuclear radioactive process that's mm -hmm. causing that to decay or change. That's why it's useful to see them not just all these things as numbers, but you really need to understand some of the fundamental differences about why these things are changing. Let's get into the NIJ-funded research, right? Yes. So basically what happens, I'm out in the middle of the desert, I die, I have certain isotope ratios, all of which are impacted by all these considerations you just outlined. Okay, but still, you know, you, you can tease out a lot of things by looking at all the different processes and isotopes. But then you want to look at this other set of processes, right? So post-mortem, as my body decays away and gets eaten by rodents or whatever happens to me. So you're really looking at those processes specifically and how they will shift these isotope ratios even further. Yes, because what's really also powerful about isotopes is you don't just look in one tissue. Typically, you're going to be analyzing multiple tissues, and you're going to look at teeth, you're going to look at bone, you may look at hair. So the reason is these are really different time periods. It's like different snapshots from a person's life. Mm -hmm. So the tooth enamel, the outside of the tooth, is very hard and it's very impervious. And so it actually forms before you're born, and then depending on which tooth, whether it's a molar or canine, and first tooth, second tooth, it basically locks in that signature between birth and maybe age 18. And most of it is going on, you know, birth to age two or three. Okay. And then it doesn't change anymore. So it's kind of like a little little window into your birthplace mm -hmm. where your first couple of few years were living. Your bones are actually very dynamic organs. They're constantly dissolving and reforming in response to what our lives are like, whether you're doing a lot of heavy labor, whether you've been bedridden, and different bones will actually turn over their calcium and strontium and mm -hmm. oxygen at different rates. So for instance, your leg bones are often represent about five or 10 years, usually more on the 10 year end. Okay. Um, your ribs might represent maybe their last five years of your life. So then you have, that's a kind of like a, a medium term snapshot or history. So I follow sports. Yep. And I have a daughter who wants to have a piercing of her ear, right? And so from those two data points, I know cartilage doesn't grow back. Is cartilage like teeth? What's going so, on there? So, well, no, I mean, cartilage actually, even though it won't reform, it won't like fill in that hole necessarily. And like if you have knee problems in sports, you know, once the cartilage is gone, it's gone. But the tissues, the proteins in the cartilage can still be replaced, what still uh -huh. remains. Gosh, there must be some great medical work that needs to be done to connect the kind of insights that you've had looking at isotopic analysis with questions like that. And that sounds like a whole other podcast series. Yes. I'd love to do one day, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> <laughs> you promised yes. to be on that. If oh, we... sure. Okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, actually, our lab, a lot of our research is funded by NASA. Um, right. We're working on calcium isotopes in astronauts and predicting bone loss. Of course. Okay. Um, so, and that's been very successful, that work. And it has a lot of implications for ground-based human health. Okay. So we're actively pursuing that as well. Okay, super. So the teeth? 
are probably your best bet for trying to, to tease out who somebody is then, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of work. Those are really robust. They seem to preserve those isotope signatures really well, at least the enamel on teeth. Bone has more of a turnover, and then but you're the saying hair. you could even use because they have different lifetimes. If yeah. you have a leg bone versus the rib bone, you're going to get what the person was doing ten years ago versus five years ago, roughly. Yes, there's actually a wonderful case out of I think Edinburgh called the Scissor Sisters case, where they found a torso in the river. They never actually recovered the head, and this is a perfect example of isotope analysis. Actually, isotopes were actually used help get a warrant in court. So it was one of the few oh, cases yeah. where mm -hmm. it was. But basically, they had DNA. They eventually found the hands. They were not with the torso. But they could do fingerprints, and they could do DNA. But there was no, no match to anyone. So they did isotope analysis, and they did it on different parts of the leg bones that corresponded to different turnover rates. Uh -huh. And what they were able to figure out is that this person probably came from northern Africa and probably in the last two to five years. So with that information, that was used right. as an investigative lead. The population of Edinburgh that's recent North African immigrants is pretty small. Sure. So they were able to go there, they were able to talk to people, and finally somebody said, you know, I had this mechanic. I haven't seen him around in a while. He had fathered a child with someone. They were able to take the DNA of the child and prove that that was him. And eventually his uh, romantic partner and her sister admitted that they had... Uh, Killed him and chopped him up and thrown him in the river. Yep. I love that story. That's very interesting. And perfect example of yeah. how just being able to pull a little bit of science out of your pocket can be very valuable. So tell me, one of the things that change in the post-mortem period that affect these ratios that you've been able to look at in your research? One of the other things is we really wanted to make sure we were establishing on its firm a scientific footing this new science that we could. Mm -hmm. So. We looked at carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, strontium, lead, and also trace elements. So we looked at a really large suite, and we looked at it in teeth, bone, hair, as well as the environmental conditions that might be mixing, for instance, soil, rainwater, groundwater. So it's actually a huge data set. Sure. We're still sorting through a lot of it, but the hair was really interesting. So the good news was that despite over about a year, the carbon nitrogen and oxygen were really fairly well preserved, fairly robustly preserved. Before you go any further, so you're working with one of the body farms? Yes, so I'm actually working with two of them. Um, one is Donnie Stedman at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, okay. and a student there, Tiffany Saul. She's been a huge part of this project. Okay. The other is Texas State San Marcos. We're working with uh, Dr. Daniel Westcott. Okay, very good. Well, we want to make sure they get the appropriate recognition. Definitely. And also, what's really important is to acknowledge uh, how much the donors and their families have contributed. Otherwise, we wouldn't have anything to study. So we really appreciate that sacrifice. Uh-huh. So you were able to look at hair. Yep. And uh, so what about the other matrices? How do they age as the PMI increases? So we haven't completed all of those analyses, but so far they seem to be fairly robust. We have some samples we're waiting for the data back, but it, they generally seem to preserve the signatures pretty well. Okay. One of the other things was in both teeth and bone, anthropologists have developed a suite of markers that can indicate whether there's been change or whether that's a pretty pristine signal. So we were also able to use those, but one of the other things we wanted to do was see if we could develop similar markers for hair. So you know, is this reliable? Is it not reliable? Sure. So we were able to show that those 
diagnostic markers, which are like trace element compositions, rare earth elements, were pretty well preserved in the bone and teeth samples. And one of the exciting things is we're developing a new technique, a new diagnostic marker for hair to indicate how much might be coming from rainwater or mm. uh, we're, we're finishing up those analyses. Forgive my naivete, but I mean, my expectation would be you have a body out there for a year in the elements and, you know, just from the fact of rain, right, you're going to get differential action from certain things being more soluble than others. You're going to get, you know, maggot work, right? Are they going to uh, eat certain kinds of things? There's going to be fractionation of all sorts. And so why is it robust in that regard, especially after you've gone through the whole bit of, you would have to treat the samples before you analyze them too, right? Yes. Yep. We have to mechanically clean them and then we chemically clean them through multiple steps and we have to grind them. So there's a number of steps. That was kind of some of the motivation behind the project is, can we trust this data? And one of the things that really came clear is there's some elements that are structurally incorporated in hair. Hair's a protein, it's called keratin. So it's basically made up of amino acids. So the elements it has in it are carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. And those were fairly well preserved, even in samples that were out in the elements. And it's not just maggots, but for instance, a lot of times the decompositional fluids will be enzymatically, bacterially, virally, incredibly active. And they're sitting in a mixture of soil, this decomposition fluid, rainwater, and they're just sitting in that all the time. And depending on the area, they might be going through freeze-thaw cycles, they might be at high temperature. So it's actually really remarkable how well-preserved these signatures were. RTI, in addition to doing the FTCOE, has done a lot of work in toxicology and is really a center for hair toxicology. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so the whole idea, how do you put drugs into a hair that might be a, for quality assurance, but if you have a hair that has drugs in it, how do you prepare it and where is the drug also is a big issue. If it's on the surface, it could easily be an environmental exposure, whereas what you're looking for is what the person ingested. These are all very complex problems. You're having the same problems, aren't you, as well? Yes, so one of the big things from the study was that strontium and lead, which are not part of the protein of hair, they're kind of either adsorbed on the surface or you know, some of it's coming from the person. Mm -hmm. Those were not preserved well at all. Mm -hmm. They changed a great deal over the course of decomposition. So in fact, in one donor, we got the entire range of expected isotope variation in strontium that you'd expect for the entire U.S. in mm. one donor over a period of about 10 months. Do you know what the mechanism of that is, or is it just at this point a phenomenological Well, result? so what we could, we actually were able to match that the, the bioavailable soil leach, so the soil was matching what they were moving towards. By a few months in, they were pretty much, they looked like the soil. So they were just equilibrating, basically. Yeah. We also tried Brett Tipple and Leslie Chesson at Isoforensics have done some really good work at trying to do some really advanced cleaning methods to try to see if they could strip off all this adsorbed or exogenous material and get back to that mm -hmm. person's original signature. We used their recommended methods because we were hoping we could still get back to the original signatures. Unfortunately, although it got a little bit closer, the isotope signatures were still pretty different from the intake samples. Sure, so it's the best available, but not necessarily as good as we really need. Yeah, and they have a really nice paper out, and their end conclusion was that this one particular method, which is three sequential 
rinses, sonications with some hydrochloric acid was the most likely to represent the person. Mm -hmm. And I have no disagreement with that. I agree sure. with that conclusion. But even that, it's a very aggressive leach. In a lot of our samples, we actually had real trouble analyzing. It removes between 95 and 99% of the strontium. Mm. And even though we've removed all of that strontium, that little bit of residual left is still not representing the person. Sure, so interesting. Actually, we had a, um, a rather enthusiastic undergrad, Tagreed Adnan, who came in our lab. She's actually a refugee from Iraq. She's very interested in mm -hmm. a lot of these things. So I gave her a very simple project, which was to take one sample of hair and split it into four. Soak two of them in just deionized water with no elements in it, and two of them in seawater. And they were soaking for three days. Mm -hmm. Then we put them through all the standard processing to find out, could we get back these original signatures? So seawater is a very aggressive, it's very high concentration, lots of ions. Sure. And we even actually spiked a little bit of lead in there. And we wanted to see, could we get back the original signatures? And for carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen, we got the original signatures back. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for strontium and lead, we were not able to. They really, they went right to the water values that they were soaking in, and we were not able to recover those, Interesting. those values. So. I mean, there's still information in strontium and hair, but it's really telling you something about the water or the environmental conditions, not appears to not be really telling you about the person. That said, another matrix that's not been looked at as much, but holds a lot of promise, are fingernails or toenails. Because they're much denser, it's got much less surface area to volume. Yeah, that's very interesting. So where do you see your work going with respect to both the research and casework implications? Certainly we're pushing forward, we're trying to get a lot of this stuff out in publication right now. Mm -hmm. So partly I'm kind of evaluating. One thing is our lab, we don't have a lot of GIS professionals. So I'm really more interested in looking at, you know, basically these smaller kind of almost mechanistic studies where you can really, really do these evaluations. So another thing that I'm really pretty passionate about is being able to connect academic researchers with forensic practitioners. So I've been very fortunate for the last six years, I've been volunteering with the Mesa Police Department in their crime oh. scene unit. Okay. Which is, it's an unusual program, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's been incredibly helpful because I think one of the issues is a lot of times academics don't really understand what are the needs of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement have the needs, but a lot of times they're too busy with casework. I'm really interested in bringing them together. One kind of unexpected part of our project was we ended up having to look at ability of freezing to preserve isotope signatures. This was not part of the original idea, but pretty much all the academic labs, they all store hair samples at room temperature and they're dry. And often they're from barbershops or they're modern and they're clean and they're dry. Right. Well, that's not forensic case samples at all. Mesa Police Department allowed me to use some of their evidence packaging materials and evidence packaging protocols to do some testing of actual law enforcement techniques to mm -hmm. see if they're suitable for stable isotope analysis. In addition, we got a diversity of hair types and also took samples that had gone through various either cosmetic treatments such as colorants, relaxers, as well as samples from the body farm that were severely decomposed, hair mats that had been out for 10 months. And we did a systematic study of the storage conditions. And mm -hmm. fortunately, the carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen all seem to be preserved pretty well, no matter whether we stored things two weeks or six months, and whether we used plastic clamshell boxes that are often used for cigarette butts and bullet casings, or butcher paper, which is another mm -hmm. technique. 
there used to be a, uh, the police chief there, George Gascon, for yes. a while. Yes. And they've, so they were very fortunate to have some great executive leadership in Mesa. Actually, there being a beta test, there's another NIJ-funded research that's looking at separating semen from mm -hmm. epithelial cells for sure. rape kits, and they're one of the beta testing. So they're I actually doing that. I did not know that. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, good for so them. There's only two in the country, and then they're one of them. So, and they're accredited lab. Uh, they do really good work there. Now, some of this stuff has been published already. Is that right? Or uh, no. So we're still writing it up. We've got several papers close to publication submission, uh -huh. but uh, but nothing has been submitted as of now. Are you continuing the the NIJ grant as we speak, or is yes? That... So I'm currently in the six month extension. Um, okay. So I'm we're finishing up. And so we're in the end analysis stages, and this is always kind of the exciting time because we sure. spent a lot of time, you know, doing all the sample preparation, and, and now all the data is coming in and it's coming together, and we're seeing such great patterns. It's really invigorating. So, Gwyneth Gordon from Arizona State University, appreciate your your time today. It's a great podcast. We learned an awful lot, and uh, it was uh, enormous fun talking with you today. Great. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. This episode concludes the first season of Just Science. Next week on Just Science, we will be taking a break for the 4th of July holiday. On July 10th, Just Science will be back with a special release season highlighting the rest of the 2017 NIJ R&D Symposium. Speakers including Dr. Jared Wagner, Lindsay Glicksberg, Dr. Rob Mayer, Dr. Jeffrey Wells, and Dr. Lynn Lamont. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.